The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayat, was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Hekigan Roku, the Blue Rock Collection, Case 13. Hario's Snow in a Silver Bowl. Engo's Introduction. Clouds gather over the Great Plain, but the universe can still be discerned. Snow covers the flowering reeds, and it is difficult to distinguish them. Speaking of the coldness of it, it is colder than frozen snow. As for the fineness, it is finer than powdered rice. With regard to the deepness, even the Buddha's eyes cannot penetrate it. While as for the way it is hidden, Devils would be unable to spy it out. I allow you are clever enough to know three corners from one. But how would you speak to shut the mouths of the people of the world? Who has the capacity to do that? See the following. Main subject. A monk asked Haryo, what is the Daiba school? Haryo said, snow in a silver bowl. Secho's verse, remarkable, the old man of Shinkai temple. It was well said that Snow in a silver bowl. The 96 can learn for themselves what it means. If they cannot, let them ask the moon in the sky. Daiba school. Daiba school. Scarlet banners flapping. The wind is cool. Good afternoon. So, as you know, I have been away until just a couple of days before session started. I was in Vermont at the annual conference of American Zen Teachers of America. And it's always interesting to get together. We've been doing it for quite a long time now. And this may be uh, my 10th or 11th 
in the beginning, there were just a few of us, and especially very few women. And nowadays, I think more women teachers than men. And this time we were at a wonderful Zen temple run by my friend Sunyana Graf, who is a Dharma heir of Philip Kaplow from Rochester. And her Vermont Zen Center is very well established and quite an impressive place. And we got together, about 30 of us, from all over the country. And one person from Philippines, another from Canada, three maybe from Canada. And I was reflecting on the topics that we were involved with and how they've changed quite a bit over these past 10 years or so. First of all, we had to break into two groups because some of us have been doing this for a while and others are pretty new. So for many of the discussions, we found that it was best to have newer people, less than 10 years, talking together about their concerns and others of us looking into matters of concern to us. And so I was reflecting on the difference from when I first started going when all of our topics had to do with kind of nuts and bolts of running a temple. You know, how to do fundraising, how to figure out administrative management issues, how to work with lay sangha, people were just starting to get residents, and very few people had any ordained students at that point, except for San Francisco Zen Center, which has always had ordained students from the very beginning. Those of you who want to become a priest and find that it's too high a bar here, go to San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) So naughty. Whoever tapes this has to take that out. (laughs) Anyway, so what we were talking about this time had a lot to do with the concern for how to train students who are senior in their practice. And our intensive training program was of great interest to the others. And how to work with those we ordain, especially in a small temple where there isn't a day-in, day-out monastic supervision. And also, as we looked around, lots of creaking and groaning and various types of ill health and 
loss of flexibility and all kinds of physical ailments. The rest of the oldest person attending was 72. The rest of us are mostly in that group in our 60s. Naturally, we talked about what's next. Have we been able to identify a Dharma successor? And as you know, in the Rinzai school, it's quite a high, very high hurdle to do this with assurance that the mind-to-mind understanding will be carried out, will be upheld. Transmission means different things from Soto school to Rinzai school. So there have been a number of Rinzai masters who left no Dharma heir. So it was a good chance to talk about all these things and reflect and sit together and just have time without a schedule. It was a wonderful, when I say without a schedule, I mean without an agenda. So much in the past we've had every minute accounted for. And this one we really worked sort of free time or long periods where we would not have to jump from one meeting of one topic to another. So it was very helpful. And came back and much to my great delight my trust in all of you was borne out. I don't need to be here for session to get prepared. You do it very well. So some of you worked very hard, and I'm very grateful, but I really didn't have any sense of having to check up Well, a little bit. But basically, I really felt great trust in Hoenji Sangha. And Seshin is just marching along. So this is a wonderful feeling for me. I don't anticipate leaving anytime soon, but one never knows. Right? So the more Sangha care, attention, noticing, this is the way it's done. This is the tradition we're upholding. 
It's not something made up, all right? It is centuries old. With, of course, natural adaptations for where we are, how we need to interpret. But the strength of this disciplined practice, the more students pay attention to every detail, how the altar is arranged, how things are set out for meals, how cleaning is done, what has to be prepared and taken away. Of course, it's nice to come in from out of town and just settle down on your cushion and it's all been arranged. But it's even nicer if you can come a day or two early and participate and help. This is really what session is all about. Before session. Once it starts, just this one mind. All the details are this snow in a silver bowl. This case is interesting about Daiba School. Some of you must be thinking, what? What's that all about? I think very often there's a kind of frustration that we have in our Zen practice with the fact that we're told over and over again, reasoning is not the way, logic is not the way, rational mind is not the way. If you think you can grasp it, you're in trouble, right? So you may be delighted to learn that this Teisho is going to be a philosophy lesson. (laughs) Well, of sorts. In what sense? The Daiba school is, uh, Daiba we get from uh, Kana Daiba, and you know, we chant Te Dai Denpo every evening, the lineage. So here is Daiba. We're chanting all the names of the Indian teachers. And we're saying, Fukuta mita sonja kyo sonja funeyasha sonja memyo sonja kabimura sonja ryuju sonja kanadaiba sonja. This kanadaiba is actually in Sanskrit kanadeva. So kanadaiba is Japanese pronunciation. Ryuju 
comes right before is his teacher, and Ryuju is the Japanese pronunciation of Nagarjuna. So many of us have read the philosophy of Majamika school of Buddhism, right? How many of you have read the middle way, the middle way philosophy? Nagarjuna, very important. How many of you have steeped yourselves in Buddhist reading? Readings, what is Buddhism? How is Buddhism? You think because you're Zen students, you don't have to do this, right? You came to Zen so you wouldn't have to read about Nagarjuna. Wrong. Wrong. I really encourage you to find out. When we're chanting the lineage, you know, all of these Indian masters who come before the Chinese masters, who come before the Japanese masters, who were they? We start out with the Buddhas that come before Shakyamuni, right? Maybe you didn't know that. Six Buddhas. Butsu means Buddha. Bibashi, Butsu, Shiki, Butsu, Bishafu, Butsu. Those are Buddhas. They came chronologically, if you want to think of Buddhas as chronological, it's okay, before Shakyamuni Buddha. Shakyamuni Buddha was not the first Buddha or the last. Any Buddhas sitting here? I've lost track, but something like 23 or 5 or something like that. And by the way, when we chant the lineage, we're chanting, we're invoking. These are the Buddhas. We're invoking. Then Shakyamuni Buddha. We're welcoming Shakyamuni, Shakyamuni Buddha. Right here. Then all the Sonjas are the Indian ancestors in the chronological lineage. By chronological, I mean who gives transmission to whom? Right on down, okay? So the second sonja is Makakasho, Makakasho sonja. Who is that? Mahakashapa. So it's helpful to know these names are all mispronounced because they're being pronounced in Japanese. But it's good for us to know pronunciation in Japanese and what it means, who it is. Hello, Kashapa. And then who? Ananda. Anan, Sonja, Ananda. Very important. You may think, I'm in the Zen school, I don't have to know all this, but when you read the koans, you meet these guys face to face, eyebrows to eyebrows, right? Can't go through koan study without meeting them. So, also, I wanted to point out, when we're chanting, it's very important that we uphold the fact that these are in our lineage, therefore there's no gap. So when we're chanting, chant without a gap, especially when you come to um, the Chinese ancestors, those are called Zenji, so we move from Sonja to Bodhidharma, who is called Daishi, great teacher, Bodai, Daruma, Daishi, that's Bodhidharma. Okay, so we, we switched from India to China. He came from India to China, right? Okay, so that starts all the Chinese ancestors. So then, 
who was Bodhidharma's Dharma heir, Eka, right? So we have Eka Dai So Zenji So San Ganji Zenji So San. We read yesterday, right? On believing in mind. That was So San, third ancestor in China. It's very helpful to know this. So when we're chanting, we don't want to chant like this. I'll give you an example of the way we chanted it last night. So san gan chi zen ji do shin dai i zen ji No, no. They would be so not interested in coming. <laughs> Just like, please. We did that already, right? I'm not coming back for a funeral ceremony. <laughs> so really, just to have vigor. So we say, Ekadai so zenji so san ganchi zenji do shin dai zenji gunin dai man zenji eno dai kan. Eno is winang. Winang Chinese. Eno, sixth patriarch. All these guys, you know, very important to know who you're inviting. Baso, Baso Zenji, Baso Do Itsu Zenji, Hyakujo Ekai. Can't go through koan work without knowing these names. So let's invite them in. Let us also, when we invite them in, show them our gratitude with enthusiastic chanting. You know, people have a misunderstanding about Zen practice. They think because we have all these rules for session, for example, we can't do this, we have to do it that way, this is the way you hold your sutra book, this is the way blah blah blah, right? They think, well, it's some kind of very sort of severe and What else? What other word? Stern, constricting, strict, all those. Any other? Stoic. Hmm? Stoic. Stoic. What else? Ritualistic. Ritualistic. But anyway, the point I'm trying to get at is they think it's kind of grim. <laughs> you know, and what I've, I've noticed this in people coming to Doksan, that there's there's a kind of uh, reluctance to engage fully. What do I mean by engaging fully? Well, of course, in chanting and in serving ourselves at meals and in doing our work and in peeing and whatever we're doing, to engage it fully. This vim and vigor, you know, this is what Zen is. It's not like, oh. I'd better do it this way. Is anybody watching me? Oh, what does it say on the chart here? <laughs> so at the risk of inviting all sorts of untoward events, <laughs> I really want you to just break through all of your constricting ideas about what you're doing here. If 
great laughter wells up. Ha ha! Wonderful. If tears come, <gasps> you sob, okay, nobody will throw you out. If you want to get up and dance, get up and dance. The only thing you can't do is get up and run away. <laughs> running away is what we all do very well. We've got our skillful means of running away. We do it all the time, sitting very still. So what I'm saying is, instead of running away and avoiding, you know, screaming moo is a wonderful way of breaking through that avoidance ritual that everyone is really so good at. So I've told you, you can do that in the Zendo, in Doksan, and definitely go out along the creek. Nobody minds. Go past Lee's feed. <laughs> As you walk down that kind of abandoned stretch of Onondaga Creek, you won't disturb anyone. And even if you do, what can happen? I shoot you. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> this problem solved. No more. <laughs> oh, my legs hurt. I think I'll take a walk down on it. <laughs> down the creek and shout move. Really, you know, um, pain, there is pain. We all have it. But we create so much extra pain by this feeling of compression that we bring to our own lives. Someone said in a wonderful wonderful metaphor. I feel as though I'm in all these boxes that other people have made for me and I don't fit in any of them. We make a box out of our own Zen practice too. So no need, no need. I see some of you looking at me like, yeah, right. Like I'm really going to do something like that. Try it. You'll like it. <laughs> you know, it's a problem because we're so concerned about appropriate behavior. What does appropriate behavior mean? Pardon? Congruent with the moment. But it's not really the way we interpret it for ourselves, is it? Not at all. What? Right. What's appropriate according to whom? According to what? According to somebody else. Mm hmm. And where is that somebody else lodged? <laughs> Living there rent free. Hmm? Rent-free, right, <laughs> yeah. 
So all these squatters telling us how, you know, what's appropriate. No, you don't dare. Think about it. Doksan is so much fun when you are just coming as you are. This is, I have said so many times, a come-as-you-are party. This true what Zen is, is a come-as-you-are party. Nothing to worry about. It's the only place, really, for many people, it's the only place. A lot of people come to session thinking it's going to be like, mm, more solidified, more rigid, more than the problems of daily life. But that's just the opposite. So we make our own boxes. We make our own problems. You know, if I think so-and-so wants me to act a certain way, you know, and I then kind of codify it, write it all down, and then I go over to so-and-so and I say, okay, this is why I don't find it very easy to be with you, because you want me to do this and this and this and this and this and this way. And that person's like, what? Huh? Big surprise. It's a really a problem for relationships, right? Big surprise. That's not what I want. I don't want any stone Buddhas. So, today's koan, I suppose, we should talk a little bit about that. The Daiba School. So Daiba, Kana Daiba, was the student of Nagarjuna. And Nagarjuna, since it seems that many of you don't know too much about him, was the first person in the history of Buddhism to have constructed a deep and complete philosophical system. And what was this system? He was seeking to prove the unreality of the external world. That's all. (laughs) And how did he do that? By showing the emptiness of everything through relativity of opposites. And showing opposites are mutually dependent. That sounds familiar, right? Co-arising, dependent co-arising, we have talked about before. And that everything has no essence. This too sounds familiar, right? There is no unchanging essence. It wasn't so much that he differed in any way from the great wisdom teachings, the Prajnaparamita teachings, of which we know very well the Heart Sutra and Diamond Sutra, 
but that he deepened those teachings and developed a kind of dialectical approach based on the premise, starting from the premise, everything exists only by virtue of its opposite. This is dialectical. This exists only because of that. And then, simply rejecting all opposites. And that is the basis of the middle way, Buddhist middle way, looking at emptiness. This is shown to be wrong because of that. This is shown to be wrong because of that. Rejection of all opposites. Now, his disproving of all conceivable statements, any statement you can come up with, he was able to disprove. You think of something, he could disprove it. All right? And they could be reduced to four things. Number one, first thing he would take up. All things exist. So that's the affirmation of being and the negation of non-being, right? Okay. Number two, all things do not exist. Right? That's the affirmation of non-being. Negation of being. Have those two. Then, number three, all things both exist and do not exist. Both affirmation and negation. And number four, all things neither exist nor do not exist. Right? So neither affirmation nor negation. So what is the essence of reality? When you've shown that all these things are just the opposites, these pairs that cannot be one thing cannot be understood without the other, and if it's understood through the other, then it doesn't have any validity. All right? So what is the essence of reality? These self-contradicting opposites, all right? Disproving all conceivable statements. What's the essence of reality? What does that get you? Emptiness. Now, some people misunderstand Nagarjuna and his uh, later disciples and think nihilism. You know, do you remember, this all sounds you know, quite abstract, but do you remember when you were a lot younger? Well, for some of you, maybe not so many years younger, and inquiring into the nature of reality? What were some of the questions you asked? Why am I here? here? What was another one? Who are you? Huh? Who are you? Who are you, or who am I? You might say to yourself, who am I, anyway? Any, any others? What came before? What came before everything? What was the origin of the universe? Or some people might have said, what, is there a God? Or what came before me? What was I before I was born? What was I before I was born? What happened to that? 
creation. What is creation? What happens afterwards? Destruction. What is destruction? Or what is existence? What is non-existence? I had a friend when I lived out in the country. I grew up in a place called Clinton, New Jersey, which was in Hunterdon County. Very beautiful rolling hills. At that time, mostly farmland. And um, in fact, right across from us was a peacock farm. And down the down the highway a bit was a turkey farm. This was quite dramatically clear when we had a very major hurricane that lifted up all the crates of all the birds and flung them across the highway. That was the least of it. Anyway, lots of peacocks running around. (laughs) And my best friend at the time, I'm talking maybe freshman year of high school, was uh, Fran Myers. And we would go to each other's houses after school, taking the school bus every now and then, quite often, in fact. And we would stay up all night talking and probing just this sort of thing. For example, what is the absolute? Is there something beyond what we see around us. And what about relative truth? What about the reality of everyday life? What appears real? But is, is it really real? Can we know something beyond what seems to be real? What we know with our intellect doesn't seem to be the whole thing. You find that to be true in looking back on your investigation? And so we didn't know so much about Nagarjuna and the teachings of emptiness, but Majamika, Majamika teachings are not that this relative world isn't, isn't real, not that human suffering isn't real, but that there is something that is beyond these appearances. Within these appearances, there is something. And it doesn't mean because we examine and look into the emptiness of a relative, the emptiness of relative phenomena, doesn't mean that they don't exist. And therefore, it doesn't mean, for example, that when we come face to face with deep insight into the nature of our own being, that we then don't have to follow the precepts. It doesn't mean because we have awakened that we are able to ignore causation as case two of Gateless Gate tells us. Yakojo and the fox 
this is really the key to our Zen practice, to know the middle way, Mahayana middle way, to know that they cannot be separated. In the midst of this and that, there is this fundamental essence, being. And what is that essence? How do you answer that? For Nagarjuna, it was silence. For Vimalakirti, too. And for Kanadeva and for Hario, it was words. But how? How were they used? If you think of words as the phenomenal world, right? Words expressing and being of phenomenal world or relative existence. Like words are necessarily part of this relative aspect of reality, right? By the nature of being words, they are, right? Anytime you use a word, a word is an expression that is based in what? Hmm? Phenomenon. Phenomenon. Logic, conceptualizing, discriminating thoughts, right? But what Nagarjuna taught was that nirvana and the phenomenal world are one and the same. Therefore, and this is something that evolved into our Zen practice, all of our koans are about this. Nirvana is not something that needs to be attained but rather, it is in the realization of the true nature of phenomena. So we say, what is the true nature of this very pain that you are having? Everybody, if you want to know what phenomena, right? What is phenomenal? What is phenomenal right now? Everybody can say, pain, right? This pain. It's phenomenal truth, phenomenal reality. Or you might say it's phenomenal. (laughs) That's what we mean. You know, phenomenal means on a scale of 1 to 10, this is a 10. It's phenomenal. In nirvana, there's no such thing as a gradation, right? It's just what it is. So in the midst of phenomena, What happens when we stop thinking that it is something that doesn't belong or that we want to get down lower in the scale of pain? When we stop thinking in terms of this as opposed to that, this is what Nagarjuna blew out of the water and Kanadeva continued, Kanadaiba. 
to realize the true nature of phenomena. Everything just stops. So each phenomenon itself, completely silent, without limitation. This is it. You've heard that many times. This is it. What you are having now that you want to thrust away from you is it. By thrusting it away, what are you doing? Pardon? Yes, and what happens when you do that? Makes it bigger. Keeps it on that scale of 1 to 10. Keeps it phenomenal. So this is all, you know, different approaches to Kanadayabha's school, the Dayabha school. And I just wanted to read you a little bit about Kanadayabha. In doctrinal disputes in India, the winner would hold a red flag in his hand. So later we have this in the verse, the red scarlet banners. So this is from uh, Engo's commentary. In these doctrinal disputes, bells and drums would be sounded in the great temples and afterwards the debates could begin. So all of these philosophical debates held by the great minds of the Majamika school, Nagarjuna and his spiritual descendants would hold these debates. So you can think about Tibetan Buddhism, where debating is as important as Zazen is for us. Nagarjuna is considered one of the most important Indian teachers for Tibetan Buddhism. They really brought this middle way, Majamika school, to its highest point. So anyway, in Kanadeva Daiba's day, the heretics impounded the bell and drum in the Buddhist community temple in a purge. Later on, we hear in Secho's verse, the 96. These 96 are what we might also view as non-Buddhist philosophers. And there's another case which is about the non-Buddhist philosopher. So these 96, we may say, okay, the 96 different philosophies, non-Buddhist. The heretics impounded the bell and drum in the Buddhist community in a purge. At this time, the Honorable Kanadeva knew that the Buddhist teaching was in trouble. So he made use of his supernatural powers to ascend the bell tower and ring the bell. All of us have supernatural powers. Right here, right now, we can ascend the bell tower and ring the bell. What does this mean? What does it mean to ascend the bell tower and ring the bell? But you didn't ascend it. What does it mean to ascend the bell tower? Learn the truth. Hmm? Learn the truth. Yes, ascend the bell tower. Probe. Another very important thing, you know, we in the Zen school say, you know, all conceptual reasoning, all discursive thought needs to be 
cut through and hurled away. But we cannot just ascend over it. We have to go through it. We have to go through it. This struggle. If this is so, then that is not so. If that is so, then this is not so. This is very important for our understanding. Sure, we can blast away. We have to know what we're blasting away. So ascending the bell tower, struggling to come to grips with what is in your way, not going around it, not having some kind of spiritual transcendence, but really ascending it. And then. So soon one of the heretics called out, who is up in the tower ringing the bell? Kanadeva said, a deva. Kanadeva was his name. A deva. What's a deva? A celestial being. He's up there. A celestial being is up there ringing the bell. He's up there, right? He's saying, I'm a celestial being. The heretic asked, who is the deva? Kanadeva said, I. The heretic said, who is I? Kanadeva said, you is a dog. Is a dog. Right? The heretic said, who is the deva? Kanadeva said, I. The heretic said, who is I? Kanadeva said, you is a dog. Now this is wonderful philosophical interchange. See how much fun philosophy can be? <laughs> you is a dog. This is far predating Joshu. Or not. The heretic asked, who is the dog? Kanadeva said, the dog is you. After seven go-rounds like this, the heretic realized he was beaten. So he submitted and himself opened the door of the bell tower. In other words, he said, okay, I want to understand what is it that you get that I don't. Please let me be your disciple. Whereupon Kanadeva came down from the tower holding a red flag, which means he won. The heretic said, why do you not follow? Kanadeva said, why do you not precede? The heretic said, you're a knave. Kanadeva said, you're a free man. Free. I was mentioning to you about the non-Buddhist philosopher. And in Nyogen Senzaki's work, he, in his commentary to the Gateless Gate, case 32, speaks about this non-Buddhist philosopher. Some of you know this case well. A non-Buddhist philosopher came to Buddha and said, I do not ask for words. I do not ask for no words. The Buddha kept silence. The philosopher bowed and thanked the Buddha, saying, 
Your loving kindness has cleared away my delusions and allowed me to enter the true path. After he had gone, Ananda asked the Buddha what the philosopher had attained. The Buddha replied, A good horse runs even at the shadow of the whip. And then Senzaki in his commentary says, Bodhisattvas. In the original Chinese, the questioner was described as an outsider. In the time of the Buddha, there were 96 schools of philosophy besides Buddhism, as I said before. One of the students of a certain school came to the Buddha and said, I do not ask for words. I do not ask for no words. Like this monk coming up to Hario and asking, what is the Daiba school? So a monk is asking a Zen teacher, what is the Daiba school? What about that school that's all about philosophical oppositions, using many words? And what about this? from our Zen direct experience. What about this Daiba school? Then Nyogen Senzaki says, the truth can neither be described by words nor by no words. Words are shadows of assertion and no words are those of negation. Both are unreal. I can imagine the philosopher standing in front of the Buddha, his whole being a question mark. This whole being a question mark is really what we must do in our zazen. Make of ourselves a whole being question mark. Answers... Don't muddy the waters. Let them go. Any answer you can come up with, what is it? Limited. Limited. But as I said earlier, you must struggle. You must struggle against those answers. See them as they arise and go further. Probe. Inquire. What is it? Don't. rest on some half-baked assumption. Don't get lost in complacency. Buddha could see that the conceptual mind of the philosopher was losing its grip. That's what we do in session, okay? We sit here and our conceptual minds begin to lose their grip. You may think, well, all of me is losing its grip. (laughs) That's good. That's good. It's fine. You can fall over, sit on a chair, stand up, walk around. As I said, at the risk. (laughs) Whatever you need to do to lose your grip, lose it. Lose your grip. Buddha could see that the conceptual mind of the philosopher was losing its grip and that he was about ready to enter into Buddha mind. 
Therefore, Buddha kept silence, like the great ocean that receives all streams and rivulets. When we really lose our grip, then all of us, our streams, our rivulets, just return home to this great ocean that we are swimming in without even realizing it. So, as I said, philosophy lesson, but we have more to look at in this koan, and so tomorrow we will take it up again. And as for the rest of today, what will you do? What will you do? No response? Investigate. Throw yourself into the house of Buddha. Lose it completely. Be Yorin. Great laughter. Everything is permitted. This is session. Everything is permitted. You cannot do anything wrong. This is radical, right? It's radical. Where did you ever hear such a thing? You cannot do anything wrong. There is nothing that you are right now feeling, thinking, plotting, whatever, that is wrong. No, I refuse to accept it as wrong. All right? You want to throw up in the zendo? Fine. Do a cartwheel? Fine. This, we have to get rid of all that stupid stuff that we have imposed on this miraculous practice that we call Zen. All right? Good.